0: Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine in studio with Ashley Thornburg. Hello, happy Monday. Yeah, happy Monday to you too, Ashley. We both were around and out and about this weekend. Oh, absolutely. Doing things for Main Street that are coming up later. Yeah, I
1: got to go to a fascinating uh, daycare and a new coffee and tea shop in town. Stay tuned in the next couple weeks for those stories. And
0: I visited with an fascinating woman from Bowman who wants to help out other women who are coming to North Dakota. So we're Wonderful. looking forward to bringing those stories to our listeners here in the near future.
1: I'm excited about the one coming up in the second half of today's show. I mean, podcasts podcast so popular, and fully a third of podcast listeners are listening to at least one podcast about true crime. So what is it that's so fascinating about true crime and... You learn about an opportunity to go explore true crime with fellow true crime buffs. That's coming up in the second half today.
0: But coming up first, we're going to hear from Dr. Jeremy Holloway from the University of North Dakota on a topic that, for many, is hard to talk about. What am I talking about? Well, it's aging and having the courage to plan for it, which means having tough, sometimes, discussions when you are 25 and not waiting until everything is crashing down on you family or a loved one. Welcome back to Main Street. It's good to be back. You are the assistant professor and director of geriatrics education at the University of North Dakota and I'd like to focus on your work today. Tell me first though, give me the history of why wanting to study geriatrics became important to you.
2: Yes, I'd be happy to do that. I was finishing my dissertation and my dissertation was focused on helping underserved Populations, specifically underrepresented students of certain like, maybe racial backgrounds or disadvantaged, you know, backgrounds. And I defended my dissertation in February of 2020. Now we probably know the context there. In March 2020, the pandemic really hit pretty strong in uh, the United States, and I was attending church And there was a pastor there, and he was a part-time pastor, still is, but full-time chaplain at a nursing home. Actually, it was a retirement community. And he shared his experience there. He was sharing about how older adults were dying indirectly due to COVID-19 because of social isolation and loneliness. They're literally coming up to him and saying, Pastor Dominic, why should I live on? Why? And Pastor Dominic is my friend to this day. Chaplain Dominic as well. And he told them, well, why should I live on? And they said, well, because you're important. And, he's, and you're not important. You are important too. We need to see how, how are you. I need to see how you're living out the, the end of your days. And that hit me really strong. I wanted to do something about that. I created an intergenerational program that got the attention of the Department of Geriatrics at the University of North Dakota. And I became hired as geriatric professor at the University of North Dakota in November, 2020.
0: Intergenerational to me means you're involving younger people, middle-aged folks and older folks together with a common mission. Tell me more.
2: Yeah, here's something that I think a lot of people I would say miss or need to understand more is that geriatrics should be something where we start with the end in mind and really start and give this geriatric type of training to folks in their 20s because geriatrics is should be at least the goal of a lot of folks right to go into older age and and really live well and finish well and to have um, their goal to age well. And so how do you do that? The only way to do that is to be proactive and to begin with the end in mind. So here actually at the Department of Geriatrics, we focus on what's called the age-friendly approach. And there's four Ms of that age-friendly approach. One is mobility, one is mentation, another one is medication, And the other one is what matters. And what matters is the foundation of the age friendly approach, pursuing what matters. That needs to be something that's educated to young people and help them to pursue what matters because it really does determine some health outcomes uh, over time.
0: When I think of those who provide care for older folks in our country, I think of low pay, I think of very difficult working t- conditions. I think of understaffing, and the list can probably go on and on. Yes, is that
2: accurate? That is accurate. There are a lot of issues. I mean, it, there's a lot of issues in general with some healthcare systems, and people know it. People know that it's not as exactly a proactive uh, uh, environment many times. Now, I'm also going to say, of course, there are. Really bright lights where you see it. I mean, I I'm from Ohio. So, you know, we we're aware of the Cleveland Clinic and uh, Cleveland Clinic is just one of the things that they do that I admire is they call every uh, person that comes in the hospital and their clinic friend. Uh, That seems like a very small thing, right? But there's an intentional approach there and it also invites the social aspect of healthcare and they've been doing that for a while. The social aspect of healthcare has been kind of, I'll say it this way, it's been paid attention to more of recent years and I'm really grateful for that. I'm so grateful because healthcare is a very, very social, socially engaging profession. Yet, a lot of our trainings only focus on the technical side health care and that is something that I'm really motivated to to influence
0: I don't know the exact demographics of the medical students at the University of North Dakota but I'm guessing they come in and they're thinking I'm going to practice family medicine I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon I want to be an ER doc and maybe the list is much longer than that but I'm guessing I'm gonna help those who are aging and older is not at the top of the list.
2: That is correct, Greg. You know, the interesting thing is my wife's a nurse. She's a nurse at Sanford. And when she graduated with her nursing degree, guess the place where the first place she worked at, it was a nursing home. So one of the things that I don't know why it's not uh, uh, communicated more, but one of the things that that happens is If, unless you're in pediatrics, when you graduate from any healthcare related field, 80% of your clientele are going to be 65 and up, especially with baby boomers, right? That population is just growing and growing all the more. Yet, there is this wide gap, and that's why we, you know, the uh, Department of Geriatrics uh, received a grant called the Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program because it's, uh, it's recognized on a government level that there are really, really wide gaps between um, a lot of the education that students are receiving that are related to you know, just the, the technical skills, but those that are more specifically targeted towards helping older adults really um, uh, navigating through their, their older years.
0: I'm guessing too that money might impact some decision making for some medical students am i going to be paid solely by medicare my whole Mm -hmm. life or am i going to have other opportunities to perhaps make a lot more money are those things that students are thinking about
2: students are i don't know if they're thinking about all of those things to be honest i i think a lot of students especially our medical students i've had an opportunity to meet with them. I mean, they are bombarded with exams. They're just thinking about their exams <laughs> and, and getting those things, getting those things done. But I, I, as often as I try to, I try to ask them, why did you get into this? Why did you do this? You know, and a lot of them, you know, they're inspired by maybe a family member or a parent. Uh, they're not thinking about Medicare. They're not thinking about some, and, and sometimes it's a positive thing. They're trusting that their institution has their best interest in mind toward what they need to know. And that's why I'm an advocate. We're actually advocating for helping all healthcare students to get this uh, geriatric knowledge. And you're right, uh, when, when you mentioned Medicare, that goes into social determinants of health. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that, but it, all those things It's our responsibility to bring that, because students are coming in just trusting us that we're going to give them the knowledge that they need to know for their life.
0: In your experience, are there some countries or maybe even parts of our country that do geriatric care better than perhaps another part of our country or maybe even here? Culturally,
2: yes, only because uh, in some countries, and I'm only gonna talk, I can't speak on all levels, but only from a cultural aspect. We have countries that embed the care of older adults within their culture. Older adults living uh, with their children is just was, is something expected. And in some countries, I uh, studied about the blue zones. But- uh, What are the blue zones? So blue zones are areas where you have A large population of individuals who live over the age of 100 and so and there's a lot of some different factors that they found some of the interesting ones are they stay socially connected older adults are socially connected connected with family members they might be living with the family members And uh, we see that there's a couple of, I won't name all of them, but there's a couple like one in Japan and there's a couple in uh, North Dakota, uh, in uh, the United States as well. But some of the factors are they're socially connected. They're socially connected and uh, education is also a factor that they're, because they're socially connected, they're communicating, learning new things, staying engaged. And those are factors that are very strong when it comes to
0: Aging well. I've noticed too, it seems to me, and I think the data might support this, that that generally speaking, people of means can provide care for their loved ones differently than people who don't have resources in our country, for sure. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, this goes into the social determinants of health for me. Um, So, one of the social determinants is the economical. condition and that can be on a community level or state, you know, uh, nation or individual Mm -hmm. or family. So yes, ones with with the education, by the way, education is another category. And a lot of people don't share this, but these things interact with each other, right? But because of education, one may have a better income and then with that income, They may know and be aware of issues uh, in the future that they need to prepare for. And so in that light, they may communicate with their parents that are uh, older. And if their parents have an education, they're more inclined to listen to their kids instead of saying, you're a kid, I'm not going to listen to you. (laughs) Not that that ever happens, right? (laughs) But, um, you know, uh, and so with that type of environment, there can be better uh, health related outcomes for older adults and for the children and the children when they become older adults and they can bestow that to their children so it is a legacy but these social determinants of health should be something that all students are uh, uh, receive education for
0: in a previous interview when you and I talked about Martin Luther King day you told me that you know there aren't manuals for being a parent. There aren't manuals for for this and that. Well, there aren't manuals for growing old either. And Two, two things about that. First is when my parents were aging, we pre- found it surprisingly difficult to get basic information that we assumed would be available to everyone yes. and we dug pretty hard. Why isn't that manual more clear? So I'm a curriculum and instruction guy
2: and I feel, I've taken it upon myself to look for areas in which there are, there is no curricula. I mean, there is no curriculum and there are no curricula for certain things. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have something. Um, And what happens a lot is that because we grew up in an environment where we went to school, I went to public school, and in that environment we went to a certain school eight hours a day. Five days a week. And so what often happens is after about 12 years of that education, you often tend to think that only the subjects that were in that school that was presented to me are the subjects that are important for my life.
0: There's a lot that wasn't covered there. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That is right. So a lot of times
2: when the other subjects are brought up, like how to manage money, or how to, you know, uh, talk with family and connect with them—all these different things—we tend to feel a sense of I don't know. I, there's a lot of words: uh, shame, or some may may uh, have a sense of uh, that they should know this already. I should just know this, and so therefore, when the subject is brought up, there's this discomfort where, well, I, I should probably know this, so. Uh, maybe we shouldn't even talk about this and this makes me feel uncomfortable, all kinds of things. And I want people to be more and more in environments where they feel okay talking about these things, navigating through these things, making mistakes as we talk through these things, because we all didn't have, well, a lot of us in this country didn't have those opportunities unless it was outside of school. So there needs to be environments where we do talk and discuss these things. And there's this sign on the wall that says, it's okay to be, to be wrong as you navigate through this because we're all learning this. And um, so at least in environments where I am an instructor or facilitator, I do that. So when we talk about aging, when we talk about you know, growing older, all these things, I do that, I am the sign that says, we can talk about any, I understand that, I understand the history. I know why you feel, you know, this way in this room. And I'm saying it's okay to feel that way. And we're going to talk through and navigate through these subjects.
0: I'm, an, I'm a parent whose kids now are, are also getting older. What are my responsibilities to share with them like you just alluded to today? How should I do that? What's your advice? These are not easy topics. They are not easy topics. No. What do you tell people that are like my age that have older kids and you need to be really thinking about this and here's maybe how you can do it.
2: This is what I do and this is what I uh, uh, really I'm passionate about doing. I'm not perfect at it. I never graduate from it. But I create environments of freedom. Environments where whether it be a child or a student or a person or an older adult, feels, I want to say safe, but I also want to say brave enough to talk about these things because that's what they need the most. They need to trust their instincts because we all have instincts too that can, are valid, are good. You know, I think that <laughs> you know, I'm a man of faith, so I'm going to say it this way. You know, when, 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 when God made us, we came with a lot of cool things. Like, and my two-year-old could, uh, knew when he wasn't getting treated the right way, right? And he would tell me, and I, that's valid. That doesn't go away. When you're 90, you still have that, right? And it's really cool, you know? And I think that we need to create environments where we honor those things. Uh, when our children, I meet with my children, when they get older, I want to have an environment where we both respect each other's perspectives because that way we can really learn from each other and we can bring in the experiences we had um, in our upbringing. Uh, Both are valid. We just need to have an environment where both are respected so we can learn from each other and grow, if if that makes sense.
0: We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Jeremy Holloway. He's an assistant professor and director of geriatrics education at the University of North Dakota. You talked about how important it is for all of us, but specifically older folks, to be socially connected. And I'm guessing there are some people listening today, that's easy for him to say. Mm. I can't hardly get out of the house, or I don't feel comfortable even walking to the store anymore. How can we do how can we do that better?
2: Yeah. It's interesting because we can't do it alone. And here's the issue because I study social isolation and loneliness of older adults, but also just in general as well. One of the things that I found is that social isolation and loneliness can affect one's self-esteem and self-efficacy. So, they may more and more start feeling like maybe I'm not someone valuable enough to have these things that better my life. And so when they experience hardship, they also don't feel inclined to do something about it because they've already felt like, well, I don't matter. And I create an intergenerational program that connects university students in healthcare fields with older adults who may feel socially isolated and alone. And at the end of the program, we give to the older adults a book called a legacy book. That summarizes the stories they shared to reinforce their lives do matter, their story matters, and their story is one to be told. And so one older adult started a a session with a student and said, I don't really have much to share. But after some time, and we train the students to reinforce the values, value of the stories of the older adult, after some time of that the older adult had you couldn't you know they the sessions went on and on because they subconsciously they said oh wow this person does care about what i have to say i actually had a lot to say but i didn't i didn't think that person cared about what mattered to me and pursuing what matters is the number one thing that all healthcare students and staff need to reinforce because it'll, be, it'll come in handy when an older dot is alone, yet they feel like, no, I'm a person worthy of having social connection. And if someone's listening to me right now, I just want to put a, a chunk of encouragement to say you are a person worthy of social connection no matter where you are. And there are resources. Believe that there are resources and look online and or ask someone to help and uh, even my program, Telegacy, T-E-L-L-E-G-A-C-Y, that one is an opportunity to have some social connection.
0: How might technology in my future help with some of the issues that we've talked about today? What's coming down the, the road?
2: Oh man, I got two letters for you. A-I. Okay. A- I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A-I, I mean, oh my goodness. Some some have said, and I it's, I believe it's pretty much true that it's going to be one of those revolutions similar to like electricity. So, but if people do it smart, and when I say people, I mean those that are kind of spearheading AI, uh, if they do it in a smart way, it's going to be presented in a seamless way that should be easy to navigate. That is the, I think, the, that, that's the essence, I think, of business. And so, um, hopefully, it will be done right. Now, most older adults, when they're having um, issues related to health, unfortunately, um, ha- have access to a lot of things related to, now, and I love not-for-profits, but the, one of the innovations that we really need to, someone needs to approach and challenge is the fact that uh, not-for-profits and anything government-funded don't have a lot of uh, people who feel like they're owners of something. And that's a lot of, that's an issue. That will take up the whole rest of our time, right? But um, that said, um, the innovations, it's almost like, unfortunately, you get like a hand-me-down of an innovative uh, approach. (laughs) And they're frustrating to navigate through. And uh, anybody that's gotten any resources that were government funded, Unfortunately, that's happened and I'm government funded. I'm thankful for government funds, but I'm saying that because we need to really collaborate with other entities, other you know, commercial, and there are folks that are collaborating, but we need to understand those things, acknowledge those things and provide people that are hurting and that don't have access to these, these premium quality AI products. We need to find a way for them to have premium quality even though they might not have the funds for it.
0: I remember when my brother and I tried to teach my father how to generate an email, something he had never done before,
1: Mm.
0: on a slow, antiquated computer and how frustrating it was for him. And fast forward to what it is you're talking about. Send an email to my son that says X, Y, and Z, thank Mm. you. And it would be done by maybe AI. Dr. Holloway, it's a pleasure. For someone who needs more information, where should they go?
2: Yes, you can contact me at jeremy.holloway at und.edu, or you can even Google me, Jeremy Holloway, UND, and I will come up. And my phone number is there, everything. Please contact me. I really believe in social connection. I really want you to contact me and just say, hey, what's up? How's it going?
0: Thanks for joining us on Main Street. It's an honor. That was Dr. Jeremy Holloway, the director of the Geriatric Education Program at the University of North Dakota.
1: Coming up in the second half of today's show, an expo for true crime buffs. That's coming up after this.
3: Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, philosophical discussions about everyday life. The question why is very empowering. It's about the divine, it's about the moral, it's about the pleasurable, it's about fear. Why is everything? I'm not very good with authority and I'm not very good with limits. And so I like a question that gives me the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I was born and raised in Manhattan on the edge of a neighborhood that most people would know as Spanish Harlem. I ended up in North Dakota because they offered me a job. It's that simple. And we've had a very good life here so far. Dispel these myths, philosophy is boring. I guess I would ask you to ask yourself, are you boring? Do you think you have nothing of interest to offer anybody? You are philosophy, philosophy is you. Everything you ask, everything you think, everything you want, everything you strive for, this is what makes up philosophy. Philosophy itself is compelling enough and exciting enough that it is pretty much the oldest discipline. And philosophers had more influence on the world than almost anybody, Plato, Aristotle, we live in their world. And so if you wanna make philosophy exciting, you have to be exciting. Philosophy majors can't get jobs or make any money. Philosophy is the highest paid major of all of the humanities, and the rate of return is actually the same over a lifetime as engineering. Listen to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life every second Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, 4 Mountain on Prairie Public.
1: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. About a third of podcast listeners in the United States say they regularly listen to podcasts about true crime— what is it that's so fascinating about true crime and where can you get a little in-person fix with fellow true crime aficionados we learn about the upcoming Fargo Crime Convention as organizer Tony Tilton visits with Prey Public reporter Daniel Webster
4: What exactly is CrimeCon and why host a Fargo CrimeCon?
5: We've heard of a, of a national crime con that happens every year and um, it's It travels to different cities. It was just recently in Orlando, and it has some of the big names from, like, Dateline NBC and all that kind of stuff involved, and it's about the true crime stuff, and that's a a phenomenon of um, people watch, like, um, Investigation Discovery and and all these kind of channels that talk about true crime and and also – movies that depict things that are close to life kind of thing. They may not be um, based on an actual story or they're not doing an actual story, that, but they're adapting something similar to it. So there's a lot of interest in that. And it's a very heavily female interest um, uh, audience probably because of the victimization part of it. And so we, uh, a lot of the female members of ValleyCon were talking about we should do a crime con. And actually somebody told me that a couple years ago. She said, I'd be, I'm be. i not interested in the sci-fi part of ValleyCon valley con and that sort of thing and some of our other events, but a crime con, I'd be very interested. So we started looking into into the possibility of doing it and found there's a huge interest in it. So we thought, why not? Let's launch one and see what happens. And um, we thought, let's do it at the time of the year when there's nothing going on. you know. And we originally tended to be the end of January and it just we didn't have a date available. So the date we got was February ten, eleven this year. We didn't realize that was the Super Bowl weekend because the Super oh. Bowl usually is the first weekend of February. Uh, but they moved the Super Bowl. But for this year, that's fine. We're going to be done by 4 o'clock on Sunday. Okay. And then next year, we're looking at being the weekend before so as to not conflict with it. Um, because they're, they're, now they're running the Pro Bowl the week before Super, the Super Bowl. It used to be flip-flopped the other way. So that's the only thing that's kind of in our way in that respect. But we figure Saturday is going to be a busy day. And um, we have a a lot of speakers lined up and we're confirming even more. So I can't give you specific names on everybody, but um, we do have quite quite a few people covering a wide range of stuff.
4: You've got speakers lined up. There's vendors that you've, you know, yep. you're getting to attend this. Who are these these folks, and how do you go about uh, getting them to come to CrimeCon?
5: Well, you know, what's funny is that at at ValleyCon and some of our other shows, we mentioned the vendors that we were going to be launching the show, and same thing, they were very interested. And then they're they're asking, "Well, what do you well What do you want, ben to <laughs> CrimeCon?" show? I said, "You know, really, from what I understand, is that." There's some, some vendors have like some personal protection kind of stuff, things like that. That's great. Um, we didn't want anything that would be glorifying any th- serial killers and things like that. So I said that that's going to be taboo. We're not going to allow that sort of thing. But anything else, I mean, the fact is is that think about the audience that's coming. It doesn't have to be crime oriented. It could just be any. You could just be a vendor show for that part. So we're going to have vendors that'll have um, stuff like uh candle candles and stuff you know and and uh you know personal personal um accoutrement things stuff. yeah so it's gonna be a wide variety more of a general vendor show but there'll be some vendors that will have some stuff that'll be oriented towards what the event is you know so like i said personal protection items and things like that um but also all of our speakers will have a booth and stuff too so we you know we're Working with some people are FBI and the local PDs and um, the indigenous women's uh, groups that are working about missing indigenous women. Um, and also, we're working with the Wetterling Foundation that someone. From that group, will be coming. We we're hoping for Patty, but we haven't heard yet, and because she is on a book tour right now. Um, but they said someone will definitely be there from their group. So um, there's a couple other groups too that we're we're working on that we're trying to nail down someone for that.
4: You know, you were just mentioning Patty Wetterling, and then of course right. the missing and murdered Indigenous women group. I feel like there's a maybe a, a perception that clearly isn't. True, but like, you know, not a lot of stuff happens in the Midwest. It's safe here. You know, we don't have right. murders and terrible things that happen. But
5: what—that that is one of the things we're talking about is because people do have that perception. And we go back to another famous case in which we're, we're working with someone from uh, one of the family members or and or people who worked on the cases, of the Jewish in case. And when that just, you know, the anniversary was just recent. It's very sad that all these things occurred, but it's one of those things that you can't pull the wool over your eyes. You have to realize this stuff happens everywhere in the world. And the more infamous things that have happened in history, the Ed Gein case, that was rural Wisconsin. It could have just been rural Minnesota or North Dakota. And it's, it's one of those issues that we have to have our eyes open to it. Not everybody is going to be your next door neighbor is going to be somebody like that, you know, but it's one of those things that obviously the interest is there. and, and, People have an idea about it, and you know I think people are starting to see more happen, especially in the Fargo area, you're seeing an upswing of this sort of stuff. So people are a little more aware, and obviously there's a lot of media about it, so there's an interest there. So while we don't want to sensationalize it and get people freaking out about it, at the same time, we're going to have a lot of law enforcement and other people involved that We'll give you some good tips to deal with these sort of things and also talk about cold cases and things that have gone on that they could use some help with. There'll be a little bit of everything in there.
4: You do expect a large female presence. Yeah. Why do you think women are so interested in true crime?
5: A lot of people like put themselves in the situation of, of either a fictional or a as fictional kind of depiction of something. Is whether it's a lifetime movie or something. So guys, guys like to put themselves into action movies, that sort of thing. Women see themselves experientially as can I trust this person next door to me or whatever, and because they've heard something down the block, what if this happened to me, kind of thing. And I think they do that a lot more than men do. And I think that's one reason why they're attracted to that sort of thing. Not necessarily attracted, but it's in the back of their mind this could potentially happen or this, you know, wow, I was I was steps away from this happening to me or I knew somebody that this happened to. And they take that more personally they get more personally involved. And I think there's, there's an emotional component in that regard. That's just one aspect. I don't think that's the only aspect of it. You know, and sadly, I think a lot of people also have seen or have heard about something and they've been close to something. So they wonder what drives this. And, and it's always what would drive somebody to do these sort of things. It's one thing to have an abusive relationship that you're dealing with, but it's another thing to have an all out criminal aspect going on. Um, and there's a psychological issue at work with this. So I think it's the same audience that would read these same books, you know, like Patricia Cornwell books versus, you know, Tom Clancy books. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of audience differentiation. You can see a definite striation. There's people of both sexes, ages, genders, all you of know, everything that read, read all these and or watch the, this content or are interested in it, but it tends to follow a little more heavily on the female side for a true crime kind of thing because I think they have a bigger stake in it in some ways.
4: So I'm looking at uh, the the news release here. Um, you've already talked a little bit about the FBI, police investigators, journalists. Yep. Um, I'm seeing podcasters, investigators, psychics, paranormal experts. All these people. Well,
5: that um, are we th- had planned. Yeah, we had planned on that originally because our good friend Adrian Lee um, does work with the police and actually just he's doing a new podcast and show. And unfortunately, he can't make it to this. He was already booked for something with these dates. So he's very interested, and he'll be here next year. We're, we're we're looking at we're talking to some other regional people though about it. But he was just working on a case that He can't finish the show because they found the body where he was told them it would be. Oh my goodness! And it's an open investigation. Yeah, and so there's stuff like that that comes across. And we were debating about that aspect of it, and I thought some people that are in. Um, Law enforcement may may not want that aspect in there, but I said it's it's something that has ha- has occurred, and people de- dealt with it. And we also wanted to kind of broaden the, the scope so it wouldn't just be that that also we mentioned that the fiction that's inspired by it. So you can talk about the writs of investigational discovery, going back to Sherlock Holmes, actually inspired detective agencies all across the world. you know they started going Doyle's creation did, and it was because of forensic, you know for forensic, um detective work. And so you can talk to that. You can talk to t- shows like CSI and you know, um, and the new all the stuff that's on T V now and, and movies and so we could layer that stuff in as well. And so it wouldn't feel like we're necessarily capitalizing it. But this is for future use. This for this initial one we're gonna be mainly with local regional law enforcement and some of the people that work with law enforcement and certain agencies that, that have dealt with some of these issues and like I said, the Missing Indigenous Women's Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have lo- local prosecuting attorney and uh, police investigators that deal with other aspects, not just necessarily crimes against an individual, but also dealing with criminal elements in your neighborhood, even even on the nuisance things, and how do you go about dealing with those sort of things. So we wanted to have some actual workshop kind of ideas going on as well.
4: Any guests in attendance that you're able to tell me like who they are? Anybody we might well, recognize?
5: Um, Alyssa Farrell she she's the Assistant City Attorney for Fargo. She works with the Fargo PD. And so we do have some Fargo PD. I'm not 100% sure on everybody's name there. We are working on, I can't say for sure, but we are working on Drew Wrigley right now. Is very interested in being there. And obviously, Drew has a big, you know, Attorney General. He's got a lot of background with this, and of course, the Jewish shooting case, and um, we're working with some of the investigators who worked on uh, the Wetterling case, as well as, so, like I said, the Wetterling Foundation. People are sending somebody. Ruth Buffalo is planning on being there for the Indigenous Women's Group, and. I'm not 100% sure on everybody else because I know that we're nailing down those people right now. I keep getting a lot of names, and it's like I, I can only invite so many for the first show, but sure. for next year we can add on. And that's the thing. is something that we can definitely build on. So the whole thing is let's launch it. Let's do something and see what happens. We're working on trying to have uh, – we're having a dinner that night um, where we're going to have some of those people speaking separately from what they do during the day. But we're also working on having an experiential thing with either a murder mystery group or somebody coming in and doing it. So that should be a fun event as well
4: do you take suggestions
5: (laughs) yeah definitely
4: you gotta get that gypsy rose you gotta get her she's fantastic oh gypsy
5: rose yes (laughs) okay there's so many and we started looking at at what's available i said well we're gonna have to keep it pretty close because we just don't have any budget yeah anything. Yeah giving the event
4: for people coming to the event what do you hope they take away
5: well, I hope I hope they think that it's a worthwhile event to go to. Number one, and that they, that is something fun and interesting that they want to see it grow. And that's the thing is that if we can get it started and build on that, we can definitely grow it, expand it for future years and add additional programming. The thing is, any event, whether it's this or sort a of Valley Con or Co- Comic Con or something that we you know that we run at the Fargo Pop Expo, if you bring in celebrities, it costs. A lot of money, so you gotta have some support to do that. Yeah, you know, people always tell us, "Well, bring in the." Uh the line guy and I'm going to like I love Ring Keith Morrison, but he he does the national event and he's like twenty five thousand dollars for a fee, you know, plus expenses. That's probably minimum, you know. And there's some of these some of these people charge a lot of money for their for speaking at something, and then some don't charge anything because it's a kind of they see it as a public service thing. But it, it depends on who you're talking to. So it's one of those things that we'd like to grow it to a point to where we could start bringing in some of those names. People always throw big names out, and it's like. Yeah, it takes a lot to get those people here, but we would definitely like to work on that. But the biggest thing is just that it's a good event that people think it's, it's worthwhile doing and it's something that we can expand on and grow from there.
4: How do people get tickets and uh, what do they got to do in order to attend?
5: It'll be at the ValleyCon um, slash Fargo CrimeCon. If you just go to the ValleyCon, we have a drop down of our events, Fargo CrimeCon, or you can just go FargoCrimeCon.com. dot should get you there too. Um, and then we have a ticket site right on there. And otherwise, the tickets will be at the door. It's only going to be like ten dollars for a day pass, and then the dinner would be a separate charge that evening. We're looking at a thirty-five to forty dollar ticket, you know, for a full dinner, a very nice dinner, you know, and in um, that ticket for that group at uh, speakers and stuff that night. So it shouldn't be an expensive outing for anybody. And then uh, vendors, we're still looking at vendors. So any vendors that are interested, we have that up right now. If they just go to our site, they can click on a vendor link and go there and sign up to be a vendor. Very inexpensive right now. Um, we're, we're trying to just, we want to see what our interest is and how that works out. So we have several vendors already, but we can use more and we're kind of adjusting as we go for this first year. And uh, anyone who's interested in helping out in the future, too, we're more than open for that. Uh, But we definitely just want everybody to show up if they can and uh, let us know what they want to see. And we'll go from there.
4: Tony, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate
1: it.
5: Very thankful, Daniel. Thanks for helping us promote it.
1: That was Tony Tilton, one of the organizers of the Fargo True Crime Expo, or the Fargo Crime Convention, coming up this weekend at the Ramada. It is happening on February 10th and 11th. Harvest Public Media is next with a focus on pipelines. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Dr.
0: Julie Peterman Bryant of the Bryant Clinic of Chiropractic and Acupuncture in Bismarck. Naturally working with people to feel better, be healthy, and live well at all ages.
1: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. To meet the country's climate goals, the United States must transition away from energy and industry sectors that produce a lot of carbon dioxide. Lawmakers have supported projects that do that, like pipelines to sequester CO2 or distribute hydrogen power. Now, pipeline proposals crisscross the Midwest. But as Eric Schmidt reports for the Ag and Water Desk, past experiences, along with a lack of clear regulation, has farmers and landowners resistant to more projects.
6: On a balmy day last October, Kenny Davis walked through a recently harvested soybean field on his property in southern Illinois. He points out what looks like a railroad tie sticking out of the ground.
1: See that right there? That's a big chunk of wood and I think it's going to be a mat. Yeah, that's a mat.
6: Davis says it's leftover debris from years earlier when the natural gas company Spire built a new pipeline through the middle of his property. They used wooden platforms to support the heavy machinery that installed the pipeline, and he says they left parts of it in his field. See how
5: big a chunk that is? If that would have went through their combine, they'd have done some damage.
6: Davis isn't the only one with damage along the 65-mile route. Further south, Ray Sinclair says the pipeline construction altered the slope of his soybean fields, causing water to pool. This green spot over here is a wet spot that we were not able to plant this spring. If that wet it had frogs in it. Sinclair says others have lost productivity too, with some farmers along the route saying their yields have been cut in half. The Illinois Attorney General is suing the company for the damages. Spire disputes the claims. As frustrated as Davis and Sinclair are with Spire, they say government regulators failed to hold the company accountable.
7: The rules and all the regulations are all there,
3: but that's just just for looks.
6: Rules like returning the land to the way it was. The feds have said natural gas is a stopgap for the clean energy transition, but Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth says the damage is a wake-up call. The Spire situation has proven how much We need to update pipeline rules from regulators. Somebody has to be watching and checking up on what these companies are doing. And now, more pipelines are coming to carry CO2 for sequestration and hydrogen as a replacement for natural gas. Many are getting huge tax breaks from the Inflation Reduction Act. Tara Rigetti is a law professor at the University of Wyoming who focuses on carbon sequestration.
1: There has been a collective choice to go down this path. Pretty much all of the modeling shows that carbon removal to some extent is going to be necessary.
6: She says big emitters like ethanol facilities, chemical and power plants need pipelines to connect to places where captured CO2 can be stored. You can't pump the gas underground just anywhere. It takes a certain type of geology. The best places are along the Texas-Louisiana Gulf Coast, Midwest, and Great Plains, often not right next to large polluters. Rigetti says that means the current 5,000 miles of CO2 pipeline
1: could grow tenfold. Really long Pipeline networks that sort of spider web, connecting all sorts of sources to different sinks. She says that
6: initially means construction in mostly rural areas, but these projects have been a hard sell. Last year, Navigator CO2 scrapped its plan for 1,300 miles of CO2 pipeline across the Midwest. And operations of Summit Carbon Solutions' 2,000-mile network have been delayed by years after North and South Dakota rejected the company's permit requests. Jared Bosley is a fourth-generation farmer and rancher in northern South Dakota who has fought the pipelines.
3: I mean, we're filling rooms with people, and the consensus is just no. We don't want it.
6: Proponents say the CO2 pipeline projects would extend the life of the ethanol industry. But Bosley says it won't directly benefit farmers, and they shouldn't have to give up their land.
3: You get absolutely nothing from this CO2 thing.
6: Rigetti, the law professor, says that's understandable, especially for a new technology.
1: Why should they be bearing those risks personally if they don't have any you know, individual benefit from it or use of it as well?
6: She says communities where this infrastructure passes through should benefit from it, like getting a share of the billions of dollars these projects stand to generate. In St. Louis, I'm Eric Schmid.
1: That story was a product of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk and was distributed through Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collaboration focusing on America's rural issues.
7: This is Dakota Day Book for February 5th. This week in 1906, students and faculty at the University of North Dakota crowded into the armory. They were going to listen to a lecture from famous author and war correspondent Jack London. London was well known for his wildly popular novel, Call of the Wild. His book, White Fang, would be published later that year. He had recently worked as a war correspondent during the Russo-Japanese War. He chafed under Japanese censorship rules. True to his heroic and muscular persona, he got arrested three times by Japanese authorities and created an international incident. Yet Jack London had not come to the University of North Dakota to talk about wolves, animal rights, or the Japanese threat to Anglo-Saxon supremacy. He had come to UND to talk about a recent trend in politics that was close to his heart, socialism. He was an ardent socialist. After describing appalling working conditions for child labor, Jack London commented, quote, The difference between the caveman and the modern man is that the modern man has no hostile environment and has increased his producing power a thousandfold. A few thousands today are able to produce as much as the millions produced comparatively few years ago. Even now, our producing power is tremendously increased over that of three generations ago. But in spite of this progress we find that millions of men are suffering for want of the common necessities, unquote. London claimed that Socialists, quote, had never been accused of going in for graft and gave their time and labor with no hope of any special reward. He said, quoting again, with nationalized industries, there could be no bribe-taking or bribe-giving because there would be no franchises to give, unquote. Among those students who listened that day, there were those who had found the Nonpartisan League, less than a decade later. Although the question of whether the NPL was actually socialist may be debatable, it is quite likely that future governor and U.S. Senator Wild Bill Langer was in that audience. 1906 was a time when socialism was an ideology full of hope, a time when no major country had taken on socialism as its banner. So it would have been easy for young men such as Jack London to imagine socialism favorably. The discussion is a little more complex today. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Andrew Alexis Farvel. I'm Bill Thomas, filling in for Merrill Pepcorn.
4: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota.
1: That's it for this Monday edition of Main Street. On today's All Things Considered, a serious look at the events as they are unfolding in the Middle East. And on tonight's episode of Hidden Brain, the psychology of our political beliefs. Coming up tomorrow on Main Street, Peter Shickley was celebrated for his PDQ Bach persona. We get a memorial tribute from our retired director of radio, Bill Thomas. That's tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.